In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart App is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are, even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh. That is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are, even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh. That is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. In February 2020, none other than Bill Kristol tweeted, We are all Democrats now. From one of the nation's leading conservatives, it was yet another sign of the chasm between moderate Republicans and Trump loyalists. Kristol earned his political stripes serving in the Reagan and George H.W. Bush administrations. Then, as founder and editor of the Weekly Standard for more than two decades, he argued for hawkish foreign policy, lower taxes, and against universal health care. After the January 6th insurrection, Crystal says our democracy is facing an internal crisis. It's all enough to make him regret Hillary Clinton's 2016 loss. We would be much better off the just reckless disregard for science and, and denial of truth and demagoguery of Trump. That's unmatched, in my view, really by, by a major party nominee of either, of either party in modern times. And bad enough that he got the nomination. I thought that would do real damage to the country. But then winning the election in 2016, uh, where obviously that damage is by no means over or even beginning to be over, I think, the degree to which having a, a really reckless demagogue, nativist authoritarian demagogue as president for four years, uh, that takes a while to recover from. You know, New Yorkers always knew Trump. Yes. Trump was a vacuous, I mean, vapid non-entity in New York. And people wouldn't do business with him. Well, I mean, I think in New York society, which I don't put myself in New York society, I'm not an aster, if you will, but but in my life of tickets and tables and going to charitable right. events for the last 30, 35 years, Trump was always a drive-by presence. You know, he had the tuxedo in the glove compartment. He jumped out of the limo, snap, snap on the red carpet, gone. Never a table mate. Never a conversation to be had. But let me switch back. Your father was obviously this figure that looms large in the neoconservative movement. What was your home life like? What was uh, the intellectual? Were you like the conservative Kennedys at the dinner table and you had to read Foreign Affairs magazine before you sat down for your salad course? No, I think my parents, if anything, bent over a little bit backwards to you know let me go play uh, baseball or football or basketball <laughs> in Riverside Park and... And we were all big sports fans, including my father. And so many of my memories, like everyone else's memories, I suppose, of being 10, 12, 14 years old is watching TV with my uh, father and my mother, not so much in sports, but uh, watching uh, the Jets and the Mets. And I was I was a big New York sports fan, and it was the 60s. You were Jets, Mets, not Giants, Yankees? Yes. My junior and senior year in high school, 
featured the Jets winning the huge upset in the, in the Super Bowl three, the Mets winning the World Series in 69, and the Knicks 69. winning in 1970 with Willow Street hobbling onto the court. So those were, I, I always felt like I never was quite as much of a sports fan after that, because how can you do better than root for these teams, which as you say, were pretty hopeless in the beginning of of the decade when I started to root for them and and won by the end of the decade. But when they won these titles, it was a shock to New Yorkers, I must yeah, say. Yeah, people forget that. It's like, well, of course, you know, right. Joe Namath and Willis Reed, but it was it was and the Mets were, of course, a total shock. So so that was an exciting I had a good youth in that respect for, in terms of sports. And and honestly, we watched a lot of mysteries on TV and stuff. So we were we were pretty um I mean my parents were intellectuals and I Grew up surrounded by more books, I suppose, than an average kid, and and then therefore did pick up a lot of that, obviously. But actually, and also in the '60s, this is sort of before neoconservatism, so they were kind of old-fashioned liberals. They supported Hubert Humphrey for president in '68. And what changed? Well, they would say, and they would have said, and I would agree with this, that the left, the old-fashioned liberalism, got overtaken by the new left, and they didn't like that. Around what time? Late 60s, I would say. I mean, the t- in New York, the teacher strike was a big deal, but the failure of John Lindsay as mayor, the sense that in domestic policy, things were falling apart, crime was increasing, the city wasn't being well-governed, uh, right. some of these big government programs weren't working too well. And then in foreign policy, the kind of uh, George McGovern uh, victory in the Democratic Party, a very decent man, but a very dovish view of America's role in the world. So they moved to the right and rethought. Uh, uh, I mean, they were always kind of heterodox liberals, I would say, sort of contrarian and didn't just take liberal pieties for granted. But uh, yeah, in the 70s, they certainly, that's when neoconservatism came into existence. It was originally a term of opprobrium used by a democratic socialist, Michael Harrington, who attacked my, he thought, it would, he thought it would sort of be the, it would discredit all these liberals who were rethinking liberalism to call them by the dread word, this is so long ago, conservative or neoconservative, but he couldn't quite say conservative as they obviously weren't conservatives from youth. So they were neoconservatives. And I remember my father wrote my father wrote a piece, I think in 1974, saying, okay, look, I guess if they want to call me a neoconservative, I'll accept the term. A lot of his friends resisted it throughout the 70s, saying, no, we're the true liberals. But you know how politics is, you sort of end up with a term, they, they stick on you. When you talk about McGovern, Dovish, and so forth, and, and, and I come from a different place where I believe that, you know, Vietnam is the stain we're never going to be able to wash away. Uh, that's when the country really took the turn down. We've never recovered from that. And, 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 it's, and, and I'm curious as to whether we ever will, because we knew it was wrong way back when. We knew Rand Corporation, Ellsberg, all that. We knew it was wrong, and we, we pressed on. But the point is, is that how much longer do you think the United States can afford, and you can t- correct me if you think this is, this is not an apt description, to be this world policeman going around the world and telling everybody else what to do all the time in order to benefit ourselves economically. How much longer can we afford to do that financially? Well, I think we could afford to do it, or in the sense, I think the price we would pay for not doing some of it is is even greater. I mean, Vietnam was obviously, in retrospect, uh, I mean, a mistake. I think we stumbled into it with decent intentions, Kennedy and uh, to some degree, Johnson, people like McNamara, who was a, you know, a, a person who wanted to do the right thing. And then we got out in a way that was uh, was understandable why we got out the way we did. And then, of course, Vietnam fell in 75 and Cambodia, and it was pretty disastrous. On the other hand, Reagan came back in 80, and uh, we won the Cold War, and it fell, and it really went up without firing a shot. And in the 90s, uh, you know, we managed to help construct a, a Europe that was kind of whole and free. We defeated Milosevic. So I would still defend the kind of U.S. Uh, 
the model of U.S. internationalism and to some degree of interventionism that held through most of those years. And I think we had a world that was in, getting better and in pretty good shape for all the mistakes that various administrations have made. But do you believe that there are things that we need to do in this? I, when I look at America now, I see, uh, you know, not just the floorboards creaking and the paint peeling. I mean, I see that this country is desperate for, forget about the COVID. And, 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 and as Howard Dean said on this program, when we interviewed him, I said, are we in trouble financially if we keep printing money to address the COVID economy? He said, we're going to be in trouble if we don't. Right. We have to print this money to keep this economy going or we'll be in real trouble if we don't. But my point is, is that you turn around and education, healthcare, infrastructure, what's going on in Texas, everywhere you turn around, uh, the country is fraying in terms of some kind of infrastructure. How much longer can we go on giving the Pentagon a blank check to do whatever they want to do to buy all this crap? bombs and planes and submarines, everything that we may or may not need when there's so many other things we need to take care of in this country right now. I mean, the Pentagon is what, about $750 billion a year. So it's about three and a half, four percent 4% of GDP, honestly. And we're about to spend $1.9 trillion on the COVID relief bill, which I think is fine, but it just shows how much it dwarfs whatever savings you're going to get for the Pentagon, what, 50 billion, 100 billion. So I really don't think it's fundamental. And I would say the COVID, COVID reminds us the world is interconnected. It matters to us how the WHO is governed. It matters to us uh, how China is governed. And so the notion that we can just sort of not worry so much about the world, I don't think is correct. And then I think the liberal answer to what I just said would be, uh, well, we can worry about the world, but we don't need all the military side of it. But I think the military side backs up the diplomatic side. So I guess I'm, I'm with the sort of Clinton type Democrats on this now. And I think the Biden administration in, in having reasonable defense preparedness and defense spending and forward deployment uh, to keep things stable and safe around the world. And I think, and also free trade and some of these things that are out of fashion. Look at the vaccine development, which is really a tribute, I would say, to uh, the kind of integrated flow of capital and and uh, also of immigration, incidentally, uh, to America, uh, who they're, they're responsible for so many of these scientific and medical breakthroughs, uh, out of also just the medical care we're getting. So I, I'd say I'm, I'm a pretty unembarrassed globalist. And I think part of that is having a reasonable military you know, capability. Neoconservative Bill Crystal. If you enjoy hearing from independent-minded conservatives, check out my 2012 conversation with Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist George Will. Today we have this cornucopia of news sources. People define journalism on their own terms, get it on their own time. I was told by an activist in South Carolina during the primary this year, that a survey showed that 72% of all Republican primary voters in South Carolina get all, not most, all of their news from Fox News. Mm -hmm. When a Republican candidate buys an ad on Fox News, he's not broadcasting, he's narrowcasting mm -hmm. right into Republican voters. Hear more of my conversation with George Will at heresthething.org. After the break, Bill Kristol walks us through the recent history of the Republican Party right to the point where Trump lost Crystal's vote. There's a lot of uncertainty in the world right now, and that can lead to depression, anxiety, or just scary thoughts that one can't turn off sometimes. A therapist helps navigate 
all those different feelings that come up. And it's amazing how much better things can feel when you have an unbiased, licensed professional there to listen. Talkspace is the number one online therapy platform that has thousands of licensed therapists trained in over 40 specialties, including anxiety, depression, relationships, and more. Your therapist can help you set and achieve your goals. Talkspace is a fraction of the cost of in-person therapy. Instead of waiting for an appointment, you can send unlimited messages to your therapist 24-7, and they'll engage with you daily, five days a week. Talkspace has thousands of licensed therapists with years of experience in over 40 specialties, including depression, anxiety, substance abuse, trauma, anger management, relationship issues, food and eating, and so much more. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $100 off your first month with Talkspace. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com or download the app. Make sure to use the code HTT to get $100 off your first month and show your support for the show. That's HTT and Talkspace.com. Hi, I'm Alec Baldwin. Don't you think it's cool to care? Carrie Yuma knows fast fashion's not sustainable and decided to spin that conscious mindset to create high-quality, low-impact sneakers. Their best-selling Akka style is the perfect, durable sneaker for dressing up or down, pairing a fresh look with broken-in level comfort. Akka is made with organic cotton canvas and ethically sourced rubber, and every pair comes with Karayuma's signature cork and Mamona oil insoles. Akka's already found its way into my summer shoe rotation. Find your pair and choose from a range of bold and beautiful colors. Right now, there's 15% off at C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash Alec. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Bill Crystal says his initial enthusiasm for social media has faded. The changes have been greater than I at first expected. I liked the, you know, the democratization of news to some degree. I thought it was a healthy thing. I, th I discovered personally a lot of people I learned a lot from whom I wouldn't have discovered in the old days because they wouldn't have been, you know, 52-year-old people who had moved, moved their way, white males who had moved up in the pecking order and were now on Huntley Wrinkley, right? And so the, the kind of flowering of a lot of voices was in many ways a healthy thing. And I underestimated the damage it would do, though, the degree to which the echo chamber character of social media, uh, Facebook, I think in particular, though, uh, but also other parts of social media have allowed people to live in their own worlds and, and believe a, a lot of things that aren't true. And also the kind of rewarding of extremism and of, and of a sort of superficial hot takes as opposed to, you know, a more serious consideration of things. Having said all that, I, you know, when I talk to young people go to college campus, you know, there's still that hunger, I think, for real information and thoughtful analysis of things. So I'm not despairing about it, but it, it does require fresh thinking. I mean, I think in terms of regulation and how we structure or how what government incentives we provide and disincentives for organizations like Facebook, um, that's something we've just let it develop on its own. Maybe that was necessary for a while, understandable, but it is the Wild West. And, and it does require, like the Wild West eventually did, some law and order, some regulations, some sheriffs. some sheriffs, yeah, some rules to try to get people to 
Uh, Should we bring back the fairness doctrine? I don't know how important that would be at this point, honestly, and I don't even know quite what it would apply to, I guess. Is Fox News a news organization? Well, no. I mean, Fox News is, a, so I was on Fox and on the Sunday show mostly, but every week, and then somewhat on, on the special report panel when, when uh, Britt Hume was the host of special report and then a little bit with uh, Brett Baer. I would say Fox News was always conservative. Uh, it wasn't quite fair and balanced. It was a sort of tug-in-cheek thing. But on the other hand, it was very different. It's very different to have a conservative-leaning or even conservative-oriented news organization with some shows, with a little bit of demagoguery, frankly, from Bill O'Reilly and, and a little bit of silliness from Sean Hannity, but still kept in check mostly, I would say, and balanced by other networks. And that is very different from the true conspiracy theorizing, no holds barred, demagoguery and nativism, racism, really, that you now get. I, I think it's, I remember when, when Trump did the birther stuff in 2011, 2012, I just thought it was ludicrous and dismissed it on Fox News. And I would say most of my fellow panelists did as well. Now, Fox did give them that platform on Fox and Friends, but we thought that was kind of the ridiculous show. And anyway, people t- thought it was just idiocy. We underestimated how much damage it would do. Obviously, I'm not trying to say that it wasn't a big, uh, there isn't a lot, a lot of people, including me, should be held responsible for being part of that organization to the degree we were. But I think the degree to which it spiraled out of control, it's a big difference between having a sort of conservative, you know, pro-tax cut, pro-conservative you know, conservative judges, whatever, news organization, and having one that truly deals in insane conspiracy theories. And one that's a mouthpiece for the GOP. And it's a total mouth. Yeah, we criticized them. I and mean, I was very, I was pro the Iraq war, but I was very critical of Rumsfeld, thought he should be fired, I was with McCain and wanted to have more troops and a different strategy. And, you know, I said that repeatedly on Fox. There was a little bit of bristling at times, because they were already a little bit getting into the mode of, gee, we don't want to antagonize the Bush administration too much. Obama did drive them a little crazy, especially in the second term. And I I don't really understand why, but in retrospect, in retrospect, was President Obama such a radical president? Not really. But I feel I'm looking back at what I said too. I mean, I don't think I said anything terrible or racist or you know crazy, but the intensity even of my opposition on some of the issues uh, to President Obama, I, I can't. I got to say, looking back, I find it a little startling. You know, I, I still would wish to structure healthcare reform differently and so forth than he would. But I, I don't quite remember. It's hard to put yourself back there. I don't think in my case, honestly, it was race. Maybe it wasn't some people's. But the the general spiraling of the right into a kind of insanity over the last decade is something that's going to take a while to dis, disentangle. But I do think the, the media incentives what you began with, Alec, is an important part of it. The incentives were always to get more extreme. Who is a person, speaking of the way that the the media has uh, uh, transformed over the last many years, um, who's someone deceased? Who's a news figure you really admired from yesteryear, if you will, that you'd love to see that kind of person come back? Yeah, no, it's, a, I mean, you mentioned Brink, Huntley Brinkley, and, and I got to know David a little bit in his very last iteration when he hosted the Sunday show on ABC. And I was on a few times when he still did it in, I think, 95, 96. And that kind of worldly wisdom, a little bit of irony and a little bit of, I've seen it all, I'm not going to get too worked up. At the time, I thought, I was young and fairly young, and I I was a little more kind of an enthusiast one way or the other. But I, I thought, in a, in a way, that is a healthy thing to, for people to see. You know what? These things come, let's not think that every policy fight, every disagreement, every confirmation of someone is the end of the world. And I do think that kind of wisdom, someone who's seen 
real war, World War II, who'd seen re real social transformation and the civil rights movement and real battles against, you know, deeply entrenched racism and so forth. And that kind of perspective is something that people don't don't have much these days. I mean, I miss my friend Charles Krauthammer, who I think would say now today, probably what I would say about myself, that he probably went a little a little too harsh in his statements on on, on Obama and on, on the Democrats in that period. We all, Where were you too harsh on Obama? What topic? Well, I don't even know that I would pull back too many of my differences with him on some topics, whether it's Obamacare, which I was critical of, or the Iran deal and so forth. But I just think the tone was too, uh, you know, absolutist and uh, just extreme in the sense that how much damage Obama and the Democrats were doing and how uh, important it was to check him. And I mean, I'm glad that he was checked in certain ways. But 2009, for example, the Tea Party began. And I kind of thought, well, it's this sort of, it's being unfairly attacked. These are people who just don't like spending all this money and want to get back to a more old-fashioned kind of conservatism. I think there was some of that, honestly. Obviously, there were a lot of decent people who just thought, gee, why are we spending all this money to bail out the banks? But in retrospect, it was it was an unleashing of passions that just never got constrained. I mean, I think typically in American history, you get real passions. Sometimes they're for good, obviously, civil rights. Sometimes they're not so good. But then they kind of get reined in and 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 turned into legislative agendas and sort of merged, you might say, into one of the parties and uh, normalized a little bit. Um, and then the fringes get marginalized. But uh, the opposite happened here. The passions took over the party on the Republican side. And again, Trump, Trump's, it's hard to say, what would have happened? What if Trump hadn't run? What if he had just been, like, as he had in the past, sort of pretending, getting some publicity, and then he chose not to? Postured. Come? Right. What if he had just postured? What if, therefore, the nominee had been, I don't know, Marco Rubio or Jeb Bush or anyone you want, you know? Or my favorite, Ted Cruz. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> would our politics be pretty different today? I guess I... On the one hand, I think so, because I do think he's an important part of it. I mean, you can have a lot of problems in our society, in our culture, a lot of bigotry, a lot of craziness, frankly. But if it doesn't have a president willing to constantly amplify it and magnify it, if you don't have someone willing to throw the match every day, you know, on the gas, I mean, the, it, it, the gas can sit there. It can be bad. It's not healthy. But it can sort of be kept under control. So I, I guess I, I often do come, people say you're a little obsessed with Trump, but I don't think I am. But if I am, it's because I do think this one man has done a huge amount of damage. But I will hasten to say this, he could not have done the damage without the enabling by the Republican Party and the conservative elites. And that's, if you could have had a president who was a bit of a crackpot, who was silly, who was a demagogue, who screamed and yelled. But you know what, if the party beginning in January of 2017 had said, look, fine, you're president, you propose your stuff, but we're gonna legislate soberly. We're not gonna echo you on everything crazy you say. We're gonna rebuke you when you go too far. You would have had an unusual four years in American politics, but not maybe an excessively damaging four years. But the degree to which Republican elected officials, Republican donors, and I would say conservative intellectual elites, so that last for me is the most painful in a way and the most disturbing, just were willing to go along with him because they wanted to, to be part of the, the winning team. Uh, that, that did huge damage. I mean, I'm a pretty moderate Democrat. And I think to myself, you know, there's a finer line between Trump and LBJ than people want to admit. 
I mean, LBJ was a haranguing, furniture-throwing. I mean, he was a real... I mean, no matter how much Bob Caro has sanitized by yeah. LBJ's reputation, um, the the uh, LBJ was somebody who, if he didn't get his way, he's going to make your life hell. He'd be on the phone till 4 o'clock in the morning. He was he was a bit of a lunatic as well in terms of him pursuing his his goals. You know, it's funny, can I just say, I mean, I've often thought about that. that I, I very much agree with that. I, somehow the system was set up maybe more to... Constrain him, but I think if you look back, it's funny. We we, we look back. I do on those post post World War II years as kind of a little bit of a things were healthier then. But I mean, look at the presence we had. Honestly, between LBJ and Nixon, we had two people who were pretty disturbed. I think you'd have to say if you looked at it analytically, right? I mean, <laughs> that's one word you might. Yeah, use. I mean, they were pretty. They yeah. were they were, and we survived them, and the people around them. I think were more, but we paid a big price, as you were saying, with Vietnam. But as you pointed out, we had people that were willing to oppose them. Yes. In, in the Watergate era, we had Republicans willing to vote to convict. Right. We had people that would stand up to the sky. I'm wondering, um, Pence has disappeared. Pence is laying low. Is he following the same plan? Is he burrowing down, getting ready for 2024? I guess they're all getting ready for 2024. But <laughs> I mean, this is the big story for me of the month since Trump left, but really the three months since the election is you could reasonably have thought, okay, Trump loses. He doesn't lose as badly as people thought he would, and as he, as he sh it would have been better if he had lost worse. And it's because it's not a full-scale repudiation. They picked up seats in the House. Exactly. They ended up losing the Senate, but it was obviously- It's repudiation-esque. Yeah, yeah, but that's a pretty big difference. But still, and you would have, I would have said, it was not crazy to them to think, well, maybe he really will start to fade away. And maybe more people will say, okay, enough already. Let's move on. The degree to which he was able to pull off the big lie and keep the party on board and his own administration on board and, and conservative elites to some degree on board for the big lie, at least for a month or two. Then they finally broke a little bit after December 14th and then after January 6th. And then after January 6th, a lot of people said, and again, this wasn't silly, okay, that's in a finally, in a way it's horrible that it happened, but an opportunity to finally get rid of Trump. And now look at it, not at all, not at all, right? I mean, Kevin McCarthy goes to visit him. They're all busy sucking up to him. Uh, the ones who don't want to suck up are just keeping quiet and hoping magically he goes away. I think for me, that's the almost as depressing as the initial enabling of Trump is the current re-enabling of Trump. Well, I think that people who are of a certain stripe, it, it's either that or they have nowhere to go. If, if, you, if you step away from Trump and you go into the other camp, you're going to be in the corner with a drink in your hand all by yourself. You're going to be lonely. There's no turning back for them now. And you're going to be attacked bitterly. I mean, the people do underestimate that. I mean, it, it's silly, these county committees and the censures and all. But if you're an actual politician, it's kind of your life, right? That's what you do on weekends. You go to these meetings, you meet these people, you've known these people for a while, they supported you, they helped you. You go meet your donors and they're all attacking you. And that's why, ultimately, of course, the voters are the problem. And and but again, it's sort of a catch twenty two. The leader, the elites, need to tell the truth to the voters. Uh, they don't want to. They're intimidated, and so the voters may continue in the delusions they've been led into by Trump and his and his enablers. Do you ever spend any time with Trump? No, I mean, I met him a couple of times, just as you, very marginally. And uh, he called. This is I'll tell one story. So in in the summer after he announced. Uh, we were anti-Trump from the beginning at the Weekly Standard, but I wrote an editorial about three weeks into his um, campaign, so this June, July of, of 2015. And I said, you know, Trump's getting some traction. We do not, we would never support Donald Trump for president at the Weekly Standard, 
But we will say that he's getting some traction and he, he's probably hit some themes that the other candidates need to look at and figure out how to nullify. They can't just assume Trump's going to go away. I had originally thought, like other candidates before, whether it's a Pat Buchanan or a Herman Cain or something, you know, he would kind of fizzle out and, and the establishment would, as he always has, <laughs> uh, win. So, But I said I was worried about Trump. So this editorial was, I guess you might say, respectful of Trump as a political phenomenon, though it made clear in like the second sentence or something that we, we would never – could never support him. He's bad for the country. So I get a phone call on a Friday afternoon. The intro goes out, goes online Thursday night, close the magazine Thursday night then. And uh, Friday afternoon, I get a phone call. I'm kind of the office phone. And the receptionist comes back and says, uh, there's someone on the phone. It's a, a woman, an assistant, apparently, saying that Donald Trump wants to talk to you. So of course, I figured it was some friend of mine, like, goofing off, you know, playing a joke. But I was sit, literally sitting at my desk and it was kind of quiet. So I said, okay, I get whoever it is, I'll, I'll go along. And it was in fact, Donald Trump's longtime personal secretary and it was Trump. And he was calling from the plane, his, his plane that was about to take off to go to Iowa. And it was like, it was funny. He said, I remember this still, he said something like, hey, they tell me you wrote some editorial that was pretty nice to me. You said you wouldn't vote for me, but I'll talk you out of that. But at least you understand that they should take me seriously. And what was funny was he sort of, they said you wrote this editorial. It was obvious that and the editorial was 700 words, you know. It's like, it didn't even occur to him that he would read yeah. the editorial. I'm not saying yeah. this out of any yeah. vanity that it was like, well, or anything. It's just kind of funny that it's so much his world of people giving him something and say, this guy Crystal is kind of a pain, but you know, maybe you call him up and stroke him for three minutes and maybe he'll be nicer when he's on TV or Do something. Do a little work here. Yeah. And Trump was pretty good at that. I would say, I mean, he, you know, it was a kind of, I mean, in a certain way, if you like that kind of thing, he's, hey, well, we got to get together sometime on the trail, you know, I'll buy a, I'll buy a coffee and I mean, buy you a drink. I don't drink, but you know, maybe you drink. And I mean, it's kind of a little bit of that New York backslapping sort of thing. That was Friday. He took off for Iowa. He said, I got to hang up, taking off for Iowa. I said, well, safe travels on the, on the trail and look forward to meeting you at some point, I suppose. And then he took off. The next day was the day that he attacked McCain in Iowa and said uh, that McCain wasn't a hero. Uh, I don't like people who've been captured. The day after, I was on actually on ABC on this week and, and said... Trump's dead. I've never liked him, but now he's he's dead to me personally. I just said so offensive what he just said, but also I can't believe he could be the nominee. <laughs> so that's my political genius there. But that was a memorable two or three days. So that was yeah, that's the last real conversation I had with Trump. I'm told you have a, a very 50-50 record in prognostication politically. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. Because I always like to, it's like the Mets, you know, I always like to pick the long shot and be contrarian, but sometimes that doesn't work out so well. Yeah. Right now, we're close to Garland probably being confirmed as the attorney general. Yeah. This is the pivotal moment. I mean, Biden winning, I'm happy about. The Garland nomination is something that nothing has cheered me more than that. Nothing's made me happier than that. And I'm wondering, which ones of Trump's appointees, because Barr is my choice, obviously, were the ones that were the most troublesome for you? Yeah, I'd say Barr, because it's such an important department, and because I knew him a little bit, and I didn't quite expect him to go as far as he did in accommodating and enabling Trump. Why do you think he did? Because he liked being attorney general and it was power. And maybe he talked himself into some of that. And I'm sure he also talked himself into the, if I don't, if I do this, I probably can not do some other things that would be even crazier. It's hard to know with people. And look, you you know this, but it's, people's psychologies are complicated. So they, they're not 100% you know, coldly calculating, rational. They talk themselves into things and they kind of believe them. They start off not believing things and they end up believing them. Pompeo, similarly, who I knew slightly and thought was pretty conservative and pretty partisan, but the degree to which he just became a really 
kind of disgraceful Secretary of State, I think. Right. Uh, I wouldn't quite have expected that either. So, but those are important departments. Defense, I think, m until the very end, when he fired Esper after the election, you know, they mostly prevented the worst stuff from happening there. So I, I give them some credit mm -hmm. for that. How did you feel the way that Garland's uh, Supreme Court nomination was handled in, uh, uh, as it lined up against Barrett? Did that horrify you, the way that McConnell positioned that? Yes, it did. And I, I sort of, I think we said so at the time, but in a kind of, oh, it's, we don't really think this is, you know, this is just taking partisanship to a new level, but whatever, McConnell's doing it. I didn't think he'd get away with it. I actually thought more Republican senators even would say, you can't really do this. It's pretty unprecedented. But I, I know Garland very slightly, but I respect him a lot. I was very pleased uh, that he was nominated. I think he wouldn't have been. This is one of these cases where one thing leads to another. Uh, because they won, the, the Democrats won those two Senate races in Georgia on January 5th, Biden felt he could afford to nominate Garland because he would then be able to replace Garland on the D.C. Circuit, a very important, the most important circuit below the Supreme Court. So it's one of these things where I don't think we would have Merrick Garland as Attorney General if the Democrats hadn't pulled out those upsets in Georgia. We're about to have him. Uh, people think very well of him. I like most of Biden's appointments, you know, I mean, most of the big ones. What uh, concerns you most about him? Because Biden is older. He'll be 82 years old or approaching 82 years old. What concerns you most about a Kamala Harris presidency? I, I have no great personal concerns. I mean, I think she's a serious person and a pretty impressive person. You know, generally, as you would expect, coming from where I've come from, I would prefer a more moderate Democrat. But I would say this. I think politically what concerns me is that it'll be easier to portray her as radical. And some of that is, let's not kid ourselves, of race and gender. And that's not that's not her fault. I mean, that's not a negative. I'm just saying in the real world of politics, it'll be a little easier for some demagogic Republicans and ad makers to say Kamala Harris is dangerous to you, as opposed to saying Joe Biden is dangerous to you. So I, I am a little worried about the politics in a general election of Harris. But if she's been vice president for Biden for four years, presumably she will have a record, they'll have a record. And I assume she would run as the heir to the Biden record. So uh, if Biden's been a good president, I think Democrats have a pretty good chance in 2024. And I think it's important. I mean, I say this as someone who's still has some hopes the Republican Party might come back someday, but I, I've got to say for the foreseeable future, which for me is really 2022, 2024, I don't see a Republican party that, one could really support in good conscience. And I think it's important that Democrats win uh, to, to prevent this kind of authoritarianism and nativism and demagoguery from coming back. And uh, if that's the case, I think it's important that Biden be a successful president. I'm obsessed with the fact that no one talks about Biden. Like everyone talks about Trump, which is understandable. And everyone talks about all these other things going on in the country and in the world, but it kind of matters. It's an old habit. Yeah. I want to see Joe Biden succeed. I think it's important for the country to have a sort of successful president. Bill Crystal, if you're enjoying this conversation, tell a friend. And be sure to subscribe to Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, Bill Crystal talks about what it will take to loosen Trump's stranglehold on the Republican Party. With how much we rely on our devices, it's easy to forget about the hardware we're born with. Take ears. Like fingerprints, your ears are totally unique. Too bad your earbuds aren't. Unless you've got Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Custom Fit Earbuds. 
Ultimate Ears Fits offer premium sound and all-day comfort. Their groundbreaking Lifeform technology guarantees a perfect fit in only 60 seconds. Just put in the earbuds, connect to the app, and watch as the purple LEDs form the earbuds to your unique shape. With 8 hours of continuous playback on a single charge and up to 20 hours with the charging case, Ultimate Ears Fits are the perfect choice for listening to your favorite music and podcast all day long without pain or discomfort. For a limited time, get 15% off above the current offer of your pair of Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Earbuds at ue.com slash fits. Just use promo code FITS at checkout. That's 15% off the current offer with promo code FITS at ue.com slash FITS. Look, staying healthy isn't easy. Watching your diet, hitting the gym, avoiding stress. But a good night's rest helps boost your overall health and wellness. And it couldn't be easier. The new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed is the only bed that effortlessly adjusts and responds to both of you. The result? You wake up ready for anything. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. During our lowest prices of the season, the new Queen Sleep Number 360 C2 Smart Bed is only $8.99. Only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends you new cartridges, so you never have to think about ink. Save up to 50%. You'll pay less than $5 a month for ink and never run out again. Find out if your printer is eligible and enroll today at hpinstantink.com. Conditions apply. For details, visit hp.com slash Spotify. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Bill Crystal founded the Weekly Standard in 1995. The Weekly Standard was closed down by our owners because we were anti-Trump at the end of 2018. I had given up being editor, but I was sort of editor at large. Steve Hayes was editor. And then- uh, It was closed down. Why? Tell me. Because we were anti-Trump. And he he was a, he's a wealthy business guy who is not himself like Trump, but- he wanted to get along with Trump. And the Trump people were pretty tough that way. They would let people know, why, why are you paying for and effect subsidizing this magazine that's attacking us all the time? And maybe he just didn't like it, I don't know. So he closed us down. He wouldn't let us find a buyer. It's quite, quite annoying. And so just a week later, I was sort of sitting there thinking, what should we do? And Jonathan Lass said, let's, let's just start a website and, and uh, we can probably get some readers. We, have, we can get some good writers. Charlie Sykes was there at the beginning too, another ex-Republican. James Carville wrote for us. He wrote a very moving piece about, hey, we're all on the same side now. This is the height of the election campaign, obviously. So, no, I mean, I, and I'm proud of it. It's been very, I think it's been open-minded. It's been centrist. It's Republican, you might say, on some issues and moderate Democrat on others. And above all, though, critical of Trump and of the accommodation to Trump. And I think the great insight Jonathan Lass and Charlie Sykes have had is it's not going away. You can't just tell yourself, Trump's no longer president. Let's just go back to being the kind of conservative Republicans or moderately conservative Republicans we were in 2010 or 2013. That does not work. There was something wrong already that we didn't pay enough attention to. But more importantly, whether it was wrong or not, what's happened has happened. And the party has got along with Trump and it's a different party. And as we're seeing at the state level, these crazy people are taking over the party at the local and state level. And then it's a big question, what do we do? Third party, try to fight to reform the Republican party. I just wrote a piece yesterday saying, yeah, maybe what we do is try to help Joe Biden be as good a president as possible and and accept that for now, we're the kind of ex-Republican wing of the Democratic party. And we're not gonna be happy with everything the Democrats do, but what Democrat is happy with everything the Democrats do, you know? So I'm very proud of the bulwark. That website is thebulwark.com? Thebulwark.com, yeah. 
I'm so grateful to hear you say that you want to hear Biden succeed. And I would want a McCain administration or so forth to succeed as well. And, and I, I just singled out Trump because I just thought Trump was different. This is different. Yeah, you were right about Cause, that. Because that, that's what horrified me about the, the election. When they voted for him in 2016, I thought to myself, well, you didn't know. Now you know. You voted for him again and you knew what you knew? I totally agree. I think it's such an important point. I mean, I've, I said that on election night, we did a live stream at the Bulwark, this, you know, and um, at midnight. And it was pretty clear that Biden was going to win once the late vote, you know, came in in Philadelphia and so forth. But I was pretty depressed. And people said after, and it was because it wasn't enough of a repudiation and because 74 million people voted for Trump after four years of Trump. In 2016, you know, you could talk yourself into thinking, oh, shake things up, kind of useful business guy, and they'll keep in line, the other people, the party, uh, regular. Somebody outside of Washington. Yeah, yeah. and I, I didn't agree with it, obviously, and I think it was short-sighted and foolish, but it was, you could be, a honestly, a decent person and think that, I think, uh, kind of talk yourself into it. I have trouble, I mean, with the 2020 vote, 74 million people for Trump after watching him for four years. There's something really worrisome about that. Over the arc of your uh, considerable career, and you, and I'm not saying this to be kind. I mean, you're such a smart and you're such a blazingly articulate guy. Why haven't you run for office? Did you ever contemplate that ever? You know, I, once or twice. This is funny. In the '90s, so the Bush, I was in the Reagan and Bush administrations. We lost, obviously, and so I was kind of a free person in January of '93, trying to figure out what to do next. Ended up starting the Weekly Standard magazine about two years later, two and a half years later. But and a few people did say, "Come back to New York and run for something," and it just didn't seem. I don't have the personality of a politician. I am not. I am not a hail fellow, well met. I. I think I'm a polite person, but I'm probably too. I'm uh, just not really into the no retail politics for you. No, I don't think sitting at all these long dinners and pretending to be interested by everyone's speeches and all that. I. I what about appointments? Were you ever approached about an appointment? Well, so I served in the Reagan and Bush administration. I. Of course, yeah. What did you do in those two administrations? So I was. I went to Washington '85. Just as a pretty young, uh, 32, I guess. I was a speechwriter for a bit for Bill Bennett and then became his chief of staff at the education department. That was a different era. I think Bill was a, you know, he was controversial, but he was a force for education reform and stuff. Uh, we tried to be civilized when we even though we caused some trouble. Uh, then I went into the George H.W. Bush White House and worked for Dan Quayle, the vice president, and became his chief of staff after a few months. And that, of course, uh, yes, I, I got a thick skin, just like you do, you know, after four years of, of, of being, of taking grief for that. I'm glad we provided a lot of material for Saturday Night Live and for others. And uh, he's a good man, honestly, and and I think, you know, had some bad breaks in terms of PR and all. And I didn't do a very good job, probably, as his chief of staff, helping him overcome that. I think he was actually a pretty good vice president. The George H.W. Bush administration was a pretty good administration. I think historians will judge, signed some bipartisan legislation, Clean Air Act, Americans with Disabilities Act, got the budget deficit going in the right direction, ended the Cold War peacefully and responsibly, got Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait, which I think was the right thing to do. We just got clobbered. We got clobbered in 1992. People want to change, 12 years of Reagan Bush, Clinton was an attractive candidate. Good lesson that, you know, election results don't always correlate maybe with what's deserved. But anyway, that was my last, uh, uh, yeah, I have a good record of being on, that was the one campaign I was most involved in, the 92 Bush quail reelect, and we got, and we got, <laughs> and we got crushed. So that's my, I've had a very, I've had a very consistent electoral, that's what, another reason I didn't get into electoral politics. From the very beginning, I've never been really much of a success in that area. Do you think Trump has anything to worry from uh, Cy Vance in New York? I, yeah, I don't know anything more than I've read, but yeah, I think right. he does. Yeah. He certainly went out of his way, fought awfully hard to keep his tax returns and business records out of their hands. And usually if people do that, that's because they don't want prosecutors. They think they're worried about what prosecutors will find. 
Why do you think the Republican Party can't shake their addiction to Trump? So I think for the elites, it's, it is somewhat fear and, and opportunism. But I think for a lot of the voters, I just think we can't un, uh, overestimate how much Trump unleashed a lot of things they had been feeling and, and anxieties, concerns, but also bigotries and hatreds, frankly, and resentments. And once people are told, it's fine, you should say things that you wouldn't. In the past, they might have thought these things. I'm not, I'm not, I don't have a Pollyannish view. Exactly. That's what I say to people. What Trump did was there were things that we, we knew that half the country felt this way. They have their prejudices, their racism, their anti-Semitism, their misogyny, whatever. But you didn't say that. And it makes a big difference if you don't say it and can't say it, because it does mean that you sort of are acknowledging then that's not quite respectable. Look, in a better world, people wouldn't think it in the first place. But in a decent world, you can still have a decent world where people keep it to themselves, so to speak, at least most of the time. But once a president unleashes it and ratifies it and justifies it and, and fosters it, it's very hard to put that toothpaste back in the tube. Bill Crystal editor-at-large of TheBulwark.com. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. We're produced by Kathleen Russo, Kerry Donahue, and Zach McNeese. Our engineer is Frank Imperial. Thanks for listening. about mcdonald's all day can't get it off my mind i can already taste it oh got my mind on my mouth and my mouth ready for some mickey d's deal there's a deal for every moment at mcdonald's right now get two of your favorites for just 350 mix and match a classic mcchicken a hot and spicy mcchicken or a juicy mcdouble price and participation may vary cannot be combined with combo meal single item at regular price The Truth Hounds is a new investigative podcast. One like you've never seen before. Well, one like you've never heard before. Comedians and real-life friends Anna Saragina and Kyle Mazzono hold a humongous magnifying glass to life's smallest mysteries. There will be laughs. Ha ha ha. There will be tears. Why? And there will be mysteries. What is that right over there? Oh, it's my missing sock. iHeartRadio is number one for podcasts, but don't take our word for it. Find Truth Hounds on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.